I don't even remember what it was. Like I, I remember it was boring and <laughs> uncomfortable. We like, were um, we were battling giraffes and uh, like with you know with the chair. Johnny had it. Johnny was fighting lions, so we had a pretty uh, pretty exciting day. Um, <laughs> so Yusuf has an individual sense of humour. Greg, you have to have to forgive him. Hello and welcome to the Propane Fitness Podcast. We are here with Greg Knuckles today, multiple record holder across many drug-tested federations, and he is the brain behind Stronger by Science and gregknuckles.com. Stronger by Science was previously Strength Theory, which you may know it as. He's deeply research-oriented, and uh, if you probably know him from his massive guides for the squat, bench, and deadlift that go deep into the biomechanics from top to toe. Hello, Greg. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How about you? Not bad. Yeah. So um, we've been itching to ask you, uh, (laughs) would you rather have a brick stuck to your head for the rest of your life or a seagull? (laughs) Is is a seagull stuck to your head? Yeah. Right. Two two important questions. One, where is each one of them stuck? Can I choose like where they're stuck to? And two, do they weigh the same, or is the brick heavier than the seagull? So the I, I, I suppose or, the, the basis of the question is how much. Don't talk over me, sir. <laughs> 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 oh no, we've lost him. Oh no, Great Greg, face, come back. <laughs> Come back, Greg. That's Greg. it. He was pissed off. He's like, right. You froze in a in a silly face. Um. So we've just been going, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> I could hear you going, Greg. Greg, like I could hear and see, but like these guys are weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's jump right back in this. So, basically, how much control do I have over these parameters here? Is it like a brick of a given size, seagull of a given size, they're stuck somewhere on my head and I can't decide where and that's that. Or can I like choose how big the brick is or the seagull is and can I choose where they're stuck on my head? So I think the basis of the question is the trade-off between a seagull, which is relatively light, but mobile and and loud and irritating. Yeah, <laughs> just like that. Yeah. Whereas the brick is kind of heavy, but immobile let's assume that you can pick where on your head as long as it's above the neck that you can have it i think they have to be different weights yeah otherwise all those seagulls are big yeah much bigger than you'd expect they're like usually. one 120 category aren't they or they're like what, what's that so, america three okay three, 40 if, pounds if it's if it's going to be a 120 category seagull <laughs> i'm in the seagull every day because by extension now i have the power of flight <laughs> That's able to produce enough propulsive force to lift us both off the ground. Seagulls can can swoop fish out of the water that weigh almost as much as they do. So as long as I weigh less than the seagull, it's going to be able to fly with me. The problem with with gaining flight via that avenue, right, is that I'm not like telepathically linked with the seagull. So obviously, I can't decide where I fly. Mm. Which, which is a drawback, but I'd still be able to fly. 
So, yeah, I think you'd end up in the sea quite a lot, I think. You what? You'd probably end up in the sea quite a bit. That's fine. I love the (laughs) It's an interesting consideration. See, I, I think if I had the option to fly but have no control over where you're flying compared to not being able to fly would always just take the safe bet but you, you're obviously you know a very thick neck if you're it was pushing your limits well oh. you'd have a thick neck if it was a seagull <laughs> so Greg's gone seagull fine I'm going seagull second question Greg just to just to warm us up is would you rather be able to read minds or be able to control other people's bowel movements definitely read minds okay See, I thought the first question was good. That one's just kind of amateurish. It's anyone, you still fix the question. Anyone who says control bowel movements, they're just sick in the head. <laughs> uh, yep. Yeah. I mean, we can take this up a level, Greg. Like we have a pretty much <laughs> an encyclopedia of these questions. <laughs> they stem all the way from family friendly all the way to. Um, can't can't post on on the internet kind of level. So like only you safe can... for 4chan. <laughs> Anything on the internet. Mm, I won't be so sure. I spent most of my teens testing that theory. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you can post anything on the internet, but there are some things that once you've posted them, you're risking jail time. You're not wrong. I mean. <laughs> First thing you need to do is download this browser called Tor. Oh god! No, dear. <laughs> uh, that helps uh, anonymize everything appropriately. Just host all our podcasts on the dark web and then ask whatever podcast questions we want. Pretty much, yeah. That's quite an extreme use of the dark web. I, this this podcast is I, taking a, I a direction. I don't think there's one single dark web fitness podcast like that's that's a niche that has not been filled. There it is. Right. Great. We've got our next idea then. <laughs> so Greg, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you get into lifting um, and into the, the science of strength and just a bit about I your background I think I want to well. talk about fitness. That, like, that, was, that was getting interesting. It was. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, Greg. I'm sorry. Tell, tell uh, us more about you. So basically I got into lifting because I got too injured to play any other sport. Um, I grew up playing baseball, basketball, American football, and, uh, actually started lifting to get better at basketball. And that was my main sport. Um, so in how I got into basketball, taking it back a step further is essentially because like my pediatrician didn't know the difference between like age and maturity apparently so like i hit puberty like a brick wall when i was about seven (laughs) Um, i'm i'm not exaggerating like that's when i started growing body hair um like i was shaving the summer between fifth and sixth grade so when i was like 10 or 11 um and my current full adult height which is 178 centimeters i was this tall when i was 11 so yeah, uh, wow. but my doctor was putting me on these growth charts and he's like, oh yeah, so you're this tall at 10, you're going to be like six foot eight. Um, so I don't know, 300 million centimeters 
I'm not good with <laughs> you know, that's what, a, that sounds right. Probably, probably like 190, 195, just all of the centimeters pretty much. Mm. Um, not not taking into account that like physically I was much older than I actually was in years. So anyway, he tells me this and I'm like, okay, basketball, that's what tall people do. So I started taking it really seriously and then I stopped growing, uh, which, which was less than ideal. So then I was like, okay, well, fuck it, I'm short, but I could still get better at jumping. So I actually started lifting to get better at jumping so I could still play basketball at a highly competitive level. Um, but then uh, within the span of about six months, I got like several pretty major injuries culminating in a concussion that uh, had like corresponding uh, cerebral hemorrhaging. Uh and so the doctor was like, hey, if you get another concussion like this, you'll probably die. And I was like, yeah, I kind of like being alive. Uh, slightly more than I like basketball. So the same ball as life, not, not entirely true. Um, anyway, so, yeah, I had started lifting to get better at basketball. And the guy who was coaching me at the time, Travis Mash, was a power lifter. And when I was like, okay... Travis, like, I'm not playing sports anymore. Uh, like, I'm 14, 15 years old and already too broken to play sports. He was like, okay, that's good because you're better at lifting weights than you were at playing sports anyways. Um, and so then he got me into powerlifting, and things have been good ever since. So it was mainly to avoid dying. <clears throat> yeah, essentially. So... Um, I can play sports that don't have like a high risk of head trauma, which unfortunately pretty much every sport that's like actually good has a high risk of head trauma. But the good thing about powerlifting is that even though head trauma is technically possible, <laughs> if it if it occurs, you're you're primarily to blame there. It's not something that kind of goes hand in hand with the sport. Um <clears throat> But yeah, pretty much. I suppose if, this is maybe a bit of a weird thing to say, but if you drop a bench press, you, if you drop a bench you're probably press dead anyway, head. aren't you? Yeah, so. the, the, if you <laughs> drop a bench press on your head hard enough to call it concussion, you probably also dropped it hard enough to like split your skull. Like, yeah, so. So Johnny's friend dropped a bench press on her nose and, and broke it, but luckily she wasn't strong enough to... To incur too much damage from it, I think it was. So if you're gonna, if you're gonna drop a bench press, be weak, be, be as weak as possible. I think that's the uh, yeah. That, yeah. scariest uh, bench fail video you're ever gonna see. Do you guys know who Tiny Meeker is? No. So the the nickname Tiny is completely ironic. He's a super heavyweight shirt adventure. Oh yeah, I've seen this guy. Yeah, and he's he's at this point the only person to ever bench in a shirt 500 kilos. Um, <laughs> But like, but like back in the day when he was maybe like the fourth or fifth best shirt adventure in the world and was like on his way up, uh, I believe it was the first time he ever attempted a thousand pounds in a meet. Uh, the bar started drifting back on him and he lost it. And were it not for like, like lightning fast reflexes where like as soon as he dropped it, he slid down the bench really quickly. So the bar like grazed his head. Oh. Like... If he wouldn't have moved, like it would have dropped like right on his chin and he'd be dead. Um, 
So yeah, that's a very scary video. That'd be but, pretty pretty instant, yeah. That's just spotless can do nothing about stuff like that, can they? Like yeah. that, yeah. That, Unless that you is. can like zerch a squat, is it two, like, <laughs> like two fifty kilos? Yeah, even that with a dynamic element to it. <laughs> well, and at, at that point, yeah, at that point, you're probably you're probably not going to be able to do anything as a spotter. And if you have one set of side spotters that's good and one set of side spotters that's not so good, it's actually like even worse. So one time I was uh, side spotting for a shared adventure who he was benching uh, 370-ish, 365, 370 uh, kilos. And um, so he, like, his wrist, like, broke forward and he started, like, dropping the bar on his chest. And he had apparently done this before. Uh, like he had to wrap his wrist so tight that he lost feeling in his hand. So like, this wasn't like an everyday occurrence, obviously. Um, but yeah, he had apparently dropped like 320 on his chest one time before. Um, but was like fine, I guess. Uh, or as fine as you can be after dropping that much weight on your chest. But anyway, um, so he, like his wrist cocked forward he drops the weight. I'm like young and like, I'm just scared out of my mind just seeing that much weight on the bar in the first place. So like I was being hyper vigilant spotting. <laughs> and so when he, when he drops it, I get my end, but the guy on the other side doesn't get his end. So it fell like off center across his chest. Uh, and his, his rib cage was, was pretty seriously mangled after that. Um, because I got my end. So if I would have screwed up, he probably would have actually been better off. Uh, anyway, he's fine now, so I don't feel bad about it. But... <laughs> it's one of those situations where you as the spotter is probably more nervous than the lifter when you see 370 on the bar and you're like, I don't know if I trust especially the guy. Especially on a bench possibly. press. Yeah, horrendous. Yeah, with, with bench press especially. Like, squat, whatever. Like, unless you're an idiot, if something goes bad, you can bail. But yeah, bench... If if shit hits the fan, <laughs> you just I don't, you're I'm under probably, a very hairy barbell, aren't you? It's over your face. I, I can't think of a good way to extend that metaphor, but <laughs> there's there's either like more shit hitting the fan or hitting it at a higher velocity or something. Like it's it's no good at all. We've seen someone hurt himself. So this was in nationals a couple of years ago, where a guy lost a squat oh. forward over his head, so it <laughs> rolled over the back of his head th on all three of his attempts. After the first one, he was bleeding and crying, and the guys were like, if you're going to bail, don't do that. Don't, yeah. And he was like, okay, sorry, and then just did the same thing twice more, ended up not getting a total, and being quite quite hurt and quite upset, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I think he, he got tipped forward, and then instead, his way of trying to bail, like it looked like he was still trying to squat, but he just like mm. just got out from underneath it, and it mm. rolled very slowly over his head. I think he was 18, mm. wasn't he? Yeah, poor guy. Mm. I think, I think like failing lifts is something that power lifters don't like have enough experience with. Like if you go to a weightlifting gym, people just take sets of squats to failure all the time and they mm -hmm. use bumpers. So like, you know, you can't get a rep up. You just pop out from under the bar drops behind you. Like no big deal, no drama. But like power lifters just don't have that skill set for the most part. 
It's uh, interesting like, you call it a skill set. I think that's I think that's a really important. Like like when gymnastics as well, you have a foam pit so that you can execute and not have the fear of of messing it up, and then you transfer yeah. it onto. It's it's definitely a skill. Um, yeah. Do you think it's related to low bar versus high bar? Like it's it's, no? it's the same. I mean the the only thing that would even be potentially different is if you have just like really god awful shoulder mobility. So like you know high bar, you're not really you're, your hands aren't like wedged behind the bar that hard. So if you need to drop them and let the bar roll back behind you, like everyone should have the mobility for that. Whereas if you're low bar and you're like wedged in there super tight, you might not be able to move your hands in time. But mm. uh, like for that, it's like mostly in the wrist. Um, as with most important things in life. So instead of, instead of like trying to drop your hands lower to let the bar roll, like if they're behind the bar like this, you can just rotate your wrists and it'll slide right off. There's a, there's a video that's, that it's like it was at IPF Worlds last year, but it was going around the internet again recently as like a meme of one of the Canadian lifters who gets mm -hmm. like sandwiched to the bar by the spotter. Have you seen that? No. Like the, Wait, what? The, the guy goes to, have you seen it, Greg? No. No. <clears throat> the the back spotter goes to help him. Um, mm -hmm. These these spotters got really heavily criticized in, in Texas, but they basically prevent him from getting out of the way. So in spotting him, grab his arm and the bar. So hold him to the bar and then they try and rack the, the bar at the same time. And he like, I don't really understand why, but he basically like flaps around for a while and then collapses. What? It, it looks like, it looks so dramatic, but it no, is, he's, he all. must be 120s at least. Um, okay. And it's a lot of weight, but it, mm -hmm. it just, we'll, we'll have we'll to have get to it. We'll have to link the video in the show notes. But um, I, I just literally just watched that this morning and just thought like the, the thought, I think the thought of being at the bottom of a squat and realizing that the spotters are unable to help you. Because mm -hmm. he gets to the bottom, tries to, get, tries to come out of the hole, fails, mm -hmm. sinks back to the hole. And there's maybe a second or two where the spotters mm -hmm. are trying to help him and the bar doesn't move. Mm -hmm. And that moment of like... Sense of fuck. doom. I'm going to die. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's 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 not what you want to happen. But still, no, no head trauma, which is which is the key thing, I think. So yeah, sure. He was still fine. I completely forgotten what what topic we're on. The next the next question we've got, which is completely unrelated, is why did you change from strength theory to the current website domain name? What prompted <clears throat> that? Uh, mostly because like no one got the name of the site before. Um, so it was a pun, but apparently it's a, it's a pun that only works in like the Southeast of the U S uh, like I'm, I'm a Southern lad and we say strength, strength it's pronounced similar to the word string. Um, uh, so, yeah. like for me, the the name of like the old name of the site was pronounced string theory like the brand uh. of physics so like the connotation is like hey this is about strength but it sounds like string theory like it's nerdy and still lifting and anyway i just thought uh, it was because it had two 
two common letters and it yeah, like matched together and it looked looked cool. That's blown my mind. I I quite liked strength theory, even yeah. if, even though I wasn't aware of the the string theory pun. Yeah, I. So actually, no, I hate strength theory or strength theory. The double ths, like, just. <clears throat> You guys saying it once or twice, like, that's fine, whatever. Like, if, if it's the name of my business and I'm saying it, like, multiple times a day, every day, just the double THs, when you say it over and over and over, you just hate it more and more and more. So uh, I, I liked string theory, but it was absolutely 0% never going to be string theory. Um, so w once I spent, like, a solid like year and a half trying to force people to recognize the pun but it never happened so i had to change the name oh well Cause i i couldn't i couldn't have people one well i couldn't have people just not knowing the name of, of my business like i don't know that's that's probably not ideal for branding <laughs> i suppose it's good you've still got the domain and stronger by science is pretty descriptive as well so that's always uh you know, you, you can't really argue with that as a name. There's no yeah. hidden meaning. No one's going to misinterpret it. Clearly yeah, we, we decided to go to the complete opposite side of the spectrum and like not be like coy and clever, just, just bludgeon you over the head with it. Just what it says on the tin. Cool. So if anyone's listening and hasn't checked out strongerbyscience.com, it is an absolute wealth, but just be aware it's a bit of a rabbit hole. Like you'll go onto the website, and then like four hours later, you'll be like, "I don't think I, I don't feel like I know anything anymore." Like um, one thing that you did talk about, which is a really interesting myth, is you went through all of the data of the USAPL uh, lifting numbers and records, and found that lift ratios, i.e., the the ratio between people's squat and bench or deadlift and bench or whatever, are not necessarily predictive of overall. Um, competitiveness and also that powerlifters are not getting better over the years um, since say 20, 2013 which is certainly the perception that the standard just keeps going up and it's more to do with as you say the number of people that are going into powerlifting can you talk a little bit about that yeah sure so um for for both the men and women uh there were like five times as many competitors in 2016 as there were in 2013. Um, so that's, that's what largely accounts for the increase in like level of competitiveness at the top levels and also increases in world records. But in terms of like just comparing the entire distribution, um, like year to year to year, like it's completely indistinguishable. Uh, the average lifter in 2016 lifts the same amount of weight within like a kilo or two of the average lifter uh, in 2013 and comparing any like two years within that range uh, like the distributions for like the total and also each individual lift like completely indistinguishable so it's not necessarily that the talent in powerlifting is getting better and that average results are improving um, and if they were there would be, uh, you know, a, a few potential ways to explain that. Maybe training methods improved. Maybe just people who are more gifted athletes in general started finding their way into powerlifting in higher numbers, uh, etc. But there would be some sort of like fundamental shift across the entire population. But that hasn't happened. Like the population itself is fi is five times bigger than it was in 2013. <laughs> 
in terms of actual performance, exactly the same as it was in 2013. Um, but they're also like very well, uh, like very, very close to perfectly normally distributed. Uh, and when you're dealing with a normal distribution, if you're trying to like forecast how good the people are going to be at the top end, um, you're looking at what the average is, you're looking at what the standard deviation is, and you're looking at how big the population is. So essentially, if you have uh, if you have a group of 100 people, um, odds are you'll probably find like maybe one or two people who are like two standard deviations above the mean, um, maybe three or four people, but you're probably not going to have five or six people who are two standard deviations better than the mean in a population of 100 people. If you make that a population of 10,000 people, however, even if like the characteristics of the population are identical, uh, if you increase that to 10,000 people, now instead of just having a small handful of people, two standard deviations from the mean, uh, you'll probably have, I mean, you'll have a bunch of people, two standard deviations from the mean, and you may find some people who are like four standard deviations from the mean. So that would, that would be an example of like, you know, just the, the more people there are, assuming something's normally distributed, the greater your chances become of finding freakier freaks, basically. Um, cause yeah, at that point you're just looking for people who are more and more standard deviations from the mean. And the larger a uh, population is, the greater your chances are of finding one of those people. That makes a lot of sense. And I suppose also you're going to find more people who maybe were part of that top percentile but didn't put in the, the other controllable inputs into lifting. And as you increase the population, you start to see that. And also Greg does not mess about uh, with the, the, the statistical mm. rigor that uh, was involved in in uh, looking at this data. Like it wasn't this wasn't just a... a a quick jump conclusion like you absolutely <laughs> dived into the data and uh, there really is like when you overlay the graphs there's very little difference between each year which is really interesting we it's the same thing in the uk there's a um in cambridge um there was a this was a this was known as one of the big kind of embarrassments of of um the ipf the gbpf where they oversubscribed a, a small town competition and 146 lifters had to lift on that day. Um, mm -hmm. And they ended up all having to only take one attempt. And it was just, <laughs> I think everyone was a bit pissed off. They, they Pete, Pete for me, turn up, do an opener, go home. Fun. Oh, that sucks. Mm. Now, one, one interesting thing that came out of that data set um, that's that's how all good stories start, by the way. So I was playing around in a data set. And found <laughs> um, but yeah, no, so you guys know who Jennifer Thompson is, right? Yeah. Okay. She's so good at binge pressing, it makes no sense whatsoever. Let me hit you with some numbers right now. So her bench press, uh, like scale for body weight, is 6.4 standard deviations from the mean of the of like the typical female bench press to put to put in perspective what 6.4 standard deviations mean um, that means that there's roughly given given a, a sample of trained powerlifters there's a one in 13 billion chance of finding <laughs> a Jennifer Thompson uh, and to put one in 13 billion in perspective uh, 
estimates suggest that there have been roughly uh, 100 billion humans ever since the start of our species, and roughly half of those would be women. So essentially, uh, you, would, you would expect there to only be three Jennifer Thompsons in the entire history of our species. <laughs> I mean, our entire species were powerlifters. That is hilarious. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is her squat, or her bench would be a 70th percentile male squat in her weight class. So, like, if a if a 130 pound, like 59, 60 kilo dude squatted what she benched, not <laughs> more than 70 percent of the competitors in his weight class. Um, also, her bench is 3.8 standard deviations above the 99th percentile for women. So, four standard deviations is like freak level, anyways. Um, and she's that far ahead of the top one percentile of women. So she's uh, probably quite safe in her record now, mm. like <laughs> unless something, some statistical accident happens in future. Yeah, you guys know who Katie Ledecky is, right? The swimmer. Did you guys watch the like female swimming at the Olympics? No. We pretty much live under a cave, Greg. <laughs> under a cave. Under a cave. That's so <laughs> so bad. <laughs> Anyway, uh, statistically, Jennifer Thompson and Katie Ledecky are the two most dominant athletes in their respective sports in the world, probably ever, and it's not even close. Uh, like, if you look at how they compare to other top performers in their sport, like, <clears throat> Jennifer Thompson is probably the, and if not the, one of the top two most dominant athletes, like, in her given sport ever. Anyway... So just kind of cool. She's quite good at benching, then. Would you say she's very good at benching? She's <laughs> her her best is one forty seven. Recently, like just in a uh, like a gym lift, she did one forty eight at sixty kilos. The reason that I that I know off the top of my head that it's that it's that is because that's the most that I've ever bench pressed in competition. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm 93 kilos, and I've been been competing for three years. That's depressing. What what's her deadlift and squat? Do you know? Uh, I mean, they're they're also elite for a woman, just not as good as her bench. Um, I think she squats maybe like 170, 175 in deadlift. Still pretty good. Hundred ish. So uh, 200, 200, did you say, for a deadlift? If, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. <laughs> but somewhere in that general range. They are really good numbers, aren't they? Incredible. I think the, ben the bench press, I just have to not think about, to be yeah. honest. Because it's... It, I mean, what, what do you think that... Um, like, when, when you see anomalies like that, is there anything that's consistent across... You know, the people talk about... Um, in the IPF, the people who are at the elite level typically come from um, a sporting background, something like the NFL or NBA. Like if you look at Ray Williams, is it, is it someone that people always talk about that I think he, play, he coaches football and used to play mm -hmm. football professionally. When you were looking at all this data, did you spot any consistencies like that? Or is it just any, anyone uh, can be an elite level powerlifter? 
Well, I mean, definitely not anyone could. Uh, that's that's nowhere close to true. Um, but yeah, like their athletic background before powerlifting, like obviously the USAPL doesn't collect data on that. Um, just in my own experience, most good powerlifters have had some sort of athletic background beforehand. Um, but the sport doesn't seem to matter all that much or, and that kind of applies across all strength sports. Um, so like, for example, in strongman, uh, Hapthor Bjornsson and Brian Shaw were both basketball players. Uh, so, you know, like basketball isn't like super heavily reliant on strength. Um, but I think it is, I think it does say something good just about like your general athleticism and like degree of explosiveness to be like a reasonably competent basketball player. Uh, Bryce Lewis, his background is volleyball. Um, and like, if you've ever watched male volleyball, they're ridiculous athletes. Um, yeah. Uh, Blaine Sumner and Ray Williams, their background is both football. Well, you're going to find a lot of U.S. powerlifters who uh, do have a background in football just because that's how a lot of people kind of get into powerlifting in the first place. Um, essentially, you get in the weight room for football. You kind of find that you're better at lifting weights than actually <laughs> playing football. Uh, and then either, like, then typically, like, when you can't get a college scholarship for football, you're like, oh, may as well stick with lifting weights. Then you discover the sport of powerlifting and it fits well. Um, but yeah, like, I, and it, so this is also, it's like a, a correlation causation question, right? Um, so is it more, is it more that like a athletic background directly helps you be a better powerlifter? Or is it just that people who, would be gifted for powerlifting were also just naturally gifted enough for other sports that they enjoyed playing other sports because they were better than most people. And then, you know, so then they played sports and got into powerlifting later. I'm honestly not sure. I would assume that having an athletic background directly helps to some degree, but I'm not sure how much. Um, oh, a, a good example of that um, with weightlifting is Colin Burns who's like very easily one of the top weightlifters in the U.S. right now. Um, he didn't start weightlifting until I think he was like 25 or 26, which is like really old to start weightlifting. Uh, but he was very, very good. Like he was an Olympic alternate, I believe, at judo. Um, so like he was already like very coordinated and had like very good spatial awareness from judo. Uh, so then when he took up weightlifting, he picked it up way, way better than most people would if they started in their mid-20s. So I, I do think the athletic background itself does directly help to some degree. I'm just not sure how much. I suppose even if it's just from the perspective of, um, you know, by the time that person's directing their training towards powerlifting, they already have an awful lot of experience in just the general habits required to be a better powerlifter compared to someone who's, who's just started lifting weights and wants to try a new sport. Yeah, definitely. And, and also, they know what hard training feels like. Mm -hmm. So this is probably the biggest thing I notice, like coaching people who have an athletic background versus not having an athletic background. Like, if, if you've played sports at a pretty high level, 
you know, when you've been to like team camps and done two a days, like you, and you have experience training for your sport harder than you're ever going to have to train for powerlifting. Like powerlifting training is tough, but it's not, it's not even comparable to being an elite athlete in most other sports. Uh, just like the, the total amount of like energy and effort you need to put into your training, how hard it is to recover, etc. So yeah, like, um, if, if you take say like a wrestler, uh, and wrestlers are crazy to begin with, but if you take a wrestler, introduce them to powerlifting, run them through a workout that, you know, pretty challenging workout, uh, at the end they'll just be like, Oh, is that it? <laughs> uh, it's like, it's nothing compared to wrestling practice. Um, Whereas if you take someone who's like completely untrained, sedentary, has no athletic background, maybe very gifted for the sport of powerlifting, uh, but just don't have that base level of experience of training really hard, you run them through like a much easier workout, and you know then they're just they feel exhausted by the end of it. Uh, they'll like complain about being fatigued and sore for several days, even though like objectively if the wrestler was coming to you like untrained he may be just as fatigued and sore like in an objective sense but he's not going to like perceive it as being as bad because he's experienced worse via wrestling uh, so yes yeah. maybe because like the the skill set required for powerlifting is very tightly clustered <clears throat> over a, a few attributes of performance and then you look at other sports like wrestling or NFL or gymnastics or something where it's, it's kind of there's a lot of separate and unrelated and almost sometimes um, biologically opposite skills that are required to maintain all at once and so sure absolutely and yeah. you know if you take like a bodybuilder even which is kind of I guess the closest thing in terms of powerlifting training usually put them into a if we have a ex-bodybuilder client and make them do a, a strength style session they'll usually be like, oh, well, there wasn't enough stuff to failure and it wasn't, you know, where where was the drop sets and where where's all this stuff? So, um, yeah, it's an interesting point. Quite quite often, though, I think, like, at least even just thinking about, um, you know, na nationals in Britain and, like, the top the top level competitors in, in, in the UK, probably a lot of the, the people who podium finish have, mm -hmm. or uh, outwardly seem to have a certain attitude towards training and they generally they generally seem to tolerate or seem to be able to tolerate an awful lot of volume and it's just it's just what they do um mm -hmm. and that you know you see examples of that like if like if you watch i'm assuming you've watched lane norton training before um like <laughs> he uh a lot of his sessions seem to be pretty high volume pretty high intensity and he just keeps going um mm -hmm. And I suppose without that attitude, which, as you say, is kind of created or encouraged by by high level sports, it's hard to achieve and, and sustain the level of volume required to be a high level lifter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would. I would generally agree with that. Um, I think. I think there are definitely people who can lift at a very high level while getting away with less volume. Uh, and in fact, like if they did more volume, they, they wouldn't do as well. Um, but yeah, in terms just speaking in generalities, I, I think that that tends to be true. There's a, there's a contrast that, um, 
It's a guy. Have you heard of Tony Cliff? Mm-mm. No, he's one twenty class um, on on the GB powerlifting team, and he competes against Mike Toucher, and I believe he's beaten Mike before. And if you listen to them discuss their relative training <laughs> techniques, so obviously Mike has like a database and like his own server for his training. Um, and Tony, I think uh, this is just from an interview, so I could be misquoting, but I think he says something like. I train twice a week in my garage and I go for a jog with my wife on the weekends. And both are like, <laughs> both are like world level top three, really, yeah. really high level lifters. So that's a primary example of what you're just saying. Like he could be doing loads of volume in those sessions, but the fact is. Well, you've got he, Mike Tushera in the center of like the, 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 the nuclear in control the center of. Yeah. Well, that's, that's like, uh, do you guys know much about John Cole? No. Uh, so he's, he's probably like the most, well-rounded strength athlete ever. Um, that is so before raw powerlifting had its like current resurgence, I want to say John Cole held the record for squat and total, definitely total in several of the squat records um, from 242 all the way up to 308. Um, and he also was a national champion and I want to say world champion in weightlifting as well. Um, and after, uh, dang it, I'm blanking on this name, um, big black dude from Texas, Mark Henry. After Mark Henry, he has the highest super total uh, ever. So squat, bench, deadlift, clean and jerk, snatch. Um, but he was the head strength coach for Arizona State. Uh, which kept him busy and just generally tired through the entire week. So his training took place every Saturday for eight hours. He just like, <laughs> he, he and his training partner would go to the gym on Saturday morning, just start lifting weights, uh, you know, bring some, some food and beverages along and just train for eight hours. Bloody so he trained eight hours one time a week and got that good. So the loads involved in that session, like I dread to think what that, what his Saturdays looked like. Oh, I'm sure they were just absolutely ridiculous, but yeah, (laughs) you know, I think training, training is definitely important. Like it absolutely makes a difference like on an individual basis, but I don't think, so I think when comparing like, you know, your current version of yourself to like your best strongest possible version of yourself the way you train is going to have some sort of impact there across like a broader population level i think that it's easy to overstate how much of a difference various training approaches are going to take or are going to make um i mean a good example would be like look at someone like ray williams so leading up to his first powerlifting meet which or so this was this was only his second meet ever, uh, and it was twenty. I want to say it was twenty fourteen. Like I think Ray has only been competing for about three years now. It may have been twenty thirteen, um, but yeah, three or four years is is how long he's been in the sport. Uh, the the second meet he ever does is I think it was is he from Mississippi or Alabama, one of the two. Anyway, like the state championship for his for his state. Um, and so, you know, like very minimal experience in powerlifting. He squats 905 in that meet. Um, like he 
jumped the rack command. Like, he took a step before he got the rack command, so it didn't count. But, I mean, he went down and blew it up. Uh, like, very convincingly squatted 900 pounds there. Um, and in interviews with him after the meet, people asked him what his training was like. And he responded with, well, first, don't call it training. I, I just, I work out. Don't, don't try to make it sound more intense than it actually is. And then, uh, in, in describing his, his uh, workouts for that, for that squat, um, essentially the gym he trained at, the bar would only hold 750 pounds. So that was, that was like easy for him. So he just, just tried to add a rep to 750, like as often as he could. Such and a Ray he... Williams problem to have. <laughs> like, oh, my bar only holds 750 pounds. Like... <laughs> so once, once he could squat 750 for 10, he was like, well, I should compete now. Yeah. Uh, and so like, yeah, he, he squatted once a week up to like one top set and one back off set and then shows up at a meet and squats what was at the time an American record. So, you know, training may have been the difference between like 900 and 1,000 for him, uh, but being born Ray Williams was the difference between, you know, the average person and being able to squat 900 training pretty much however you wanted to. 